University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. I'm giving up chocolate for Lent, Pastor, is one of the most common lines I've heard over the years. Chocolate joins the likes of coffee, caffeine, TV, social media, beer, wine, and carbs are the most common things that people give up. I have to confess to you that there is no way I could give up coffee for 40 days. It's just just beyond me. I did have somebody tell me one time that they're giving up swearing for 40 days. I thought, well, at least... You know, they're 40 days getting that out of it. Probably the most scandalous thing uh, I ever had somebody give up for Lent is I had a couple come up to me and tell me what they were giving away for Lent, and I'll just let you fill in your imagination what they meant by that. The last thing a pastor expects on an Ash Wednesday service. Whatever you've given up for Lent, hallelujah, fasting is over because Easter has arrived. However, during the season of Lent, we've been looking at why Jesus is calling us to give up more than just something for 40 days, such as the mindset of superiority, busyness, chasing after fool's gold, worry, and unhealthy validation. We're we're in our series, Done, Why Giving Up Our Life Saves It, and we're examining the critical teachings of Jesus to understand what exactly Jesus is calling us to be done with in order to save our life. And today's text is quite unique in the sense that Jesus has been dead. Do you remember the religious leaders had falsely accused him? They handed him over to Pontius Pilate in a sham trial where he was found guilty. He was beat to a bloody pulp, forced to walk the streets with a cross on his shoulders where the crowds jeered and mocked him, nailed him to a cross, lifting him to the air until he suffocated in agony. They put his dead body in a grave, sealing it with a big stone. So how can Jesus save our life if he can't even save his own? What good were all his teachings and ministry moments and miracles if he's not actually around to live them out? This is the mental and spiritual state that the disciples are in Friday evening, Saturday, and into Sunday morning. They were in a state of shock and anguish and unimaginable grief and filled with anxiety about the future and what it held. What do you do when the one who promised you life is dead? What do you do with your life after you've left everything to follow someone whose promises seem to have gone nowhere? Well, what they did was what they were accustomed to do in their burial process. You would go to the tomb to mourn and to prepare the body for final resting. And John chapter 20, verse 1 says this, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and to the other disciples, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. You know, since we know the story, the, the shock factor is, is completely gone. You can imagine Mary Magdalene, who had been thinking in this moment. She's already in the march of grief and anguish to the tomb, and her emotions are flipped in an instant as she discovers that the tomb is empty, and that it's open, and the body is missing. What happened? Who had stolen 
him away? Was it the same religious nuts that, that probably discarded his body like trash? Was it the Romans who oversaw this shameful execution of him? They feared that people might try to use him as a martyr, and so they stole his body. So many questions. So much anxiety is swirling around as Mary Magdalene discovers the empty tomb of Jesus. And all she can think to do is to run back to the disciples that were hiding when she discovers them. She bursts into the room, probably panting and sounding like a crazy person. The rest of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all state that the, that the disciples didn't believe her, which is clear in what it says in verse 3. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the clothes that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separated from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, went also inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from the scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back where they were staying, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. I love how the gospel writers have to let us know that Peter got outrun to the, <laughs> to the tomb. It's like they're trying to tell us that he was not in the best shape, right? <laughs> but nothing is, is resolved in this story. All we have is the testimony of Mary Magdalene, an empty tomb, and that's not a lot to go on. There's not a lot left for them to understand what's happening. They're left with more questions than answers, more anxiety than hope. And I love how the scripture tells us that Mary Magdalene is left there by herself, lost in sorrow. Historically, Mary Magdalene has not been seen in favorable light. Many have regarded her as a prostitute, some believing that she was a, the woman that was thrown in front of Jesus, caught in adultery by the Pharisees, beseeching him to do the right thing and stone her to death. However, Mary Magdalene's ill repute may be the victim of biblical ineptitude. There are several women in the Bible named Mary, including Mary of Bethany that anointed Jesus' feet. Unnamed is another passage where Je a woman uh, who cleaned Jesus' feet with her tears and with her hair. Why would the gospel writers name Mary Magdalene by name in some passages, but not others in a totally different encounter they had with Jesus? What we do know about Mary Magdalene are three key facts. First, Luke 8 tells us that Jesus cast out seven, seven demons out of her. Jeez Louise, there wasn't a lot of room in there, was there? <laughs> Second, all four Gospels uh, give her at the, at the foot of the cross. Throughout Jesus' brutal execution and his death, she was there along with only one disciple. All the rest were hiding in fear. She was there until the very end. And third, what we know about Mary Magdalene is that she is a woman in first century Palestine. So from a legal standpoint, a woman's testimony was not accepted. Why else do you think the male disciples disregarded her word and didn't believe her even now? According to the ancient Hebrew text, quote, women are responsible for sin coming into the world in, in spite of unbearable nature. Or another scripture says, daughters are a disaster. So the Hebrew scriptures have no discussion about women apart from their relationship to men, and that's how they were viewed in first century Palestine. And if you recall that most famous passage of the woman caught in adultery and brought before Jesus by the religious leaders judging uh, on, on whether they should stone her to death, 
on these horrible atrocities that apparently she had committed, she was being bound to these horrible acts with no regard of who that other man could be. It was only coincidental that he wasn't there to receive the same punishment that the religious leaders were trying to throw on top of her. She was a woman in first century Palestine. She had no rights. There was no religious or social or political thing that she had to speak into this world. This woman joins the throngs of other women used throughout history as pawns for religious and political and social power. Two were involved and yet one publicly shamed in this moment. Here we have a woman who is experiencing this overwhelming grief and even the people that are supposed to be closest to her don't believe her. They disregard who she is. Mary Magdalene's story is not a new story. It's one that many have experienced. Can you connect with Mary Magdalene? Have you ever felt or do you feel inadequate? There are many things in each of our lives that lead us to fall into the powerful emotion of weakness, powerlessness, and incompetence. Just think about all the different areas of your life in which there's an opportunity for you to feel inadequate, whether it be from work or a career or a relationship or friendship or health or fitness or appearance or age, whether you're feeling too young or too old. There's that tension within our culture right now that is pitting side against side, forcing people to find a place, forcing people to feel a sense of inadequacy in their life if they're not, quote, picking the right side. The climate of politics causes people to feel a sense of weakness and vulnerability. And even in faith, we can see from our text that religion can be used to force people into a sense of inadequacy. And then there's this universal experience of the COVID-19 crisis that has changed our lives forever in uncompromising ways. The feeling of inadequacy can sometimes come with a cocktail of emotions. From sadness and shame to helplessness and anger, from embarrassment to disappointment, and from frustration to vulnerability. And for many, there is that undercurrent that you have going on in your mind of, I just can't do this. I just can't change my circumstances. This is just how it's going to be. Sometimes people feel inadequate and helpless because they've been regularly invalidated or as treated as incompetent. It can be incredibly challenging to think that you're a person of worth just to have the people around you never affirm who you are. Inadequacy is that feeling of an inability to experience our free will and to express our opinions and make decisions and assert our personal choices. And we might feel that we have no influence over our situation, no say-so in what's happening in other people's lives. We feel a sense of brokenness. And you can't rationalize with these feelings. It's that ubiquitous cloud that hangs over you, following you wherever you go, affecting everything that you see in yourself, in your relationships, in your work, and in the world. I want you to close your eyes for just a second, and I want you to imagine a third-grade me. Not a lot taller than I am right now. Keep your eyes closed. I know what you're thinking. Man, that kid is adorable. His parents should probably consider getting a talent agent so he can go do Hollywood. That's my third-grade me, right, that you're imagining. But in third grade, something deeply formational happened to me. I had a math teacher that wasn't exactly the kindest person in the world. And I was struggling really hard in math, specifically understanding long division. And I can remember this moment to this day 
and a point of frustration, she looked at me and said, Andy, you will never be good at math. Those words have shaped the rest of my life. I know it sounds insane to you, but even to this day, as a person who is pursuing a doctoral degree, I will question even leaving a 20% tip if I did the math right on the receipt. The words that people speak into our lives, the things that we hear them say, shape the way that we feel about ourselves. And those emotions run deep, and they have deep psychological and physiological impacts on who we are as human beings. Whether because of your age, or your gender, or your sexuality, or your marital status, or your station in life, or your economic status, or your political persuasion, or, or your ethnicity, or the way that you look and carry yourself, so much of these things that people say and we feel from us affects the way that we see ourselves, and it begins to take not just a psychological toll, but it takes a physiological toll within our body. That disappointment and that fear and that insecurity and that lack of control and that hesitation and that anxiety are just starters of the things that our, our body begin to experience, leading to things like a crippling mindset, leading to things like depression, leading to things like closing ourselves off to other people. So yes, maybe we can relate to what Mary Magdalene is feeling this moment is feeling of being overwhelmed by what's happening around her, and yet the people closest to her won't even validate what she has experienced. But it says this in verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the feet. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was a gardener, she said, Sir, I, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned towards him and cried out in, in rabbinic, rabbinai, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them, that he had said these things to her. The, the power of this moment is almost indescribable. Here is a woman bound by these very real and emotional turmoil of things like grief and sorrow and inadequacy and invalidity and, and hopelessness. She could have chosen to encounter any of the 11 disciples. that Jesus could have encountered them instead, but instead Jesus chose her. He chose a woman in a highly patriarchal and sus suspicious society that held her in no regard whatsoever. He chose her to be the first to see his resurrected body. He chose her to experience the power of this world-altering moment. But he didn't just choose her to witness this moment. No, Jesus empowers Mary Magdalene with the most important message in human history. 
Jesus commissions Mary Magdalene to go preach and proclaim to the world that it will never be the same after today. That what they once thought was impossible is happening. That God is changing the trajectory of humankind with Jesus defeating death and brokenness and evil. Jesus empowered this woman, equipping her to overcome all of her feelings of inadequacy and vanquishing the invalidity of her peers. Jesus filled her with a spirit of courage and strength to go tell these men the most important thing that they had ever heard in their lives. Jesus does this for her because he loves her. Jesus does this because he believes she is a child of God. Do you believe God loves you? Do you believe that God's love can empower you to see the value you have to God and to this world. But just because you feel your efforts are futile doesn't mean they are futile. Just because you believe yourself to be one thing doesn't make it such, and yet in this moment what Scripture is trying to tell us is God is trying to validate who you are and give you a sense of worth. John's first letter proclaims that God is love, that God showed God's love by sending Jesus so that we might find true life through him. This is love, John declared. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and allowed Jesus to experience death for the sake of God's love for us. God loves us so much. It's a love that seeps deep into the caverns that are wrought and frustrated with those raw emotions. It's a light in those dark places that compel us forward so that we might discover a new way. This is why Jesus' invitation is so powerful. For it is only Jesus that can lead us into a way of truth, bringing transformation, deeply rooted significance, and, and a powerful purpose for our existence. God's love empowers us to see our unique value to God, discovering how God has uniquely made each of us, equipping us with the gifts and talents and strengths we have to make a difference in this world. And if you can't believe this, just start thumbing through the Gospels for evidence. Lest we forget that the Gospels are filled with pages of of Jesus doing this to others. The lame, the deaf, the blind, the leprous, the diseased, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, those that were considered to be racially inadequate, social outcasts, and religious heretics. Jesus gave them a sense of worth and value and their deep feelings of inadequacy. And despite how the religious and political and cultural and economic system treated them, Jesus picked them up, dusted them off, loved them, and empowered them to become agents of God's goodness and change in the world. Don't miss this. God chose the unwanted and made them the most significant in the world. The invitation from the Easter story is simple. Let's be done with inadequacy. Through faith, let us move behind those, let's leave behind those negative influences in the world that make us believe we're not enough that we can't make a difference. Let's move beyond those self-made perceptions that cause us to look in the mirror and to not believe that we matter, that my story and my perspectives and actions don't matter. May Mary Magdalene inspire us to believe that God has faith in us to do great things, that our life can proclaim God's love by showing up and living our life well. 
Do you believe that God loves you like this, values you, and believes in you, and has equipped you to make a difference right where you are? And if not, why not? Significance is not defined by recognition or by accolades. That, so that means stepping away from the mechanisms that cause us to feel insignificant in our life. And when we begin to tune these things out and tune into God's leadership, it's amazing how the view of ourselves can change. Through the power of God's Spirit within us, we can not only see what God has and sees through us, but how we are equipped to make a difference in the world. So may we recognize God's leadership in our life. May we come to the empty tomb this morning with all the raw emotions that are welling up within us. And may we begin to see that the Easter resurrection is not just for Jesus, but it's also for us. Through resurrection, we are empowered through faith to be done with inadequacy, discovering our value to God beyond our comprehension. This morning, we celebrate Easter by recognizing the significance of this day by coming to the Lord's table. We invite you this morning to enter into a time of contemplation, and if you feel led, we invite you to come down front to receive the elements. We, of course, are reminded in the night that Jesus was betrayed that he gave thanks among the disciples. He broke the bread and gave it among them and said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took the cup and said, this is the cup of a new covenant of my blood poured out for you. Take and drink in remembrance of me. So may we be reminded of the sign of Christ this morning, that God is love, enough to lay God's self out for us, experiencing death and destruction, so that we might feel valued and loved. The logistics this morning is if you are on this half of the sanctuary, we invite you to come down this aisle here and exit outside. If you're on this half of the sanctuary, we invite you to come down here and go off to the side. And if you're in the balcony, we'll have somebody come and meet you up there. If you feel led, come to the Lord's table. Mm-hmm.